Hello, all you spooky listeners. I'm Lauren. And I'm Dallas. And welcome to Spooky Spooky Talk, Talk, a podcast about true crime, paranormal activity, and anything that is just downright spooky. Spooky. Hello, everybody. We are back. Um, Just going to say real quick that we saw a ghost the other weekend, and it was really, really awesome. Um. Ghost, like the band, not a ghost, but ghost, the the band. Yeah, and I'm going to stop making empty promises with just how busy the summer is and work and everything like that. It's, I, I wanted to put one out every week, but it wasn't really happening, so I'm just going to release them as I can. I'm shooting for a week, but this one was a little uh, late to the party. Um, okay, so regardless, same trigger warnings as last time. Uh, yeah, child death. Because we're here for part two. Part two of Forbidden Love. Yes, thank you. So if you haven't listened to part one, please go listen to part one because it will make a lot more sense instead of just tuning in at part two. Because this one, this part two is pretty rough. This is when we get into the really gruesome details here. Um, so same trigger warnings, like I said, cussing, uh, child death, drug and alcohol abuse, uh, murder, murder, and uh, disturbing dialogue. So are you ready? I'm ready. Are you ready? I am. Let's go. Where we last left our Mickey and Mallory wannabe lovebirds, they cemented the idea of a killing spree. Jasmine couldn't help but brag to anyone who would listen about how her and Jeremy's souls were combined. We made love because I loved him so much. Besides the gag fest her friends were having while Jasmine gave explicit details about her sex life, they were very upset with her other favorite topic. She would bring up different ideas on how to kill her parents. And in return, her friends would begin to distance themselves. Her laundry list of different ways to kill them ranged from setting the house on fire, stabbing, shooting, or possibly poisoning. She talked about how her brother needed to die as well because he was too sensitive and he wouldn't be able to handle the loss of both parents. He's going to be a baby back bitch about the whole situation. Yeah, like that's the way they treated it. And I was like, that is awful. He also recently got Jasmine in even more trouble. Mark and Deborah went out for date night and told Jasmine that she was to stay home and watch over Jacob. Obviously, she left to go be with Jeremy. Jacob got scared of being alone and ended up calling his parents. Mark and Deborah cut their date short and tightened the reins on Jasmine. Jeremy would write to his friend who went by the screen name Super Jesus and spoke with her about the murder plot that was cooking. He was so upset with Jasmine being on lockdown and he was only able to talk to her in the early morning hours on the phone. Jasmine would sneak into the basement, and she had to whisper. He told her about all their talk of murder got him inspired, and he wrote a song for her about killing her parents. You feel you're alone, but you're not. (laughs) I will give you everything that I got. I will prove to you this is true when you see everything that I do. I will kill 
I will spill the blood for you tonight. It will be a blood-shedding fight. You satisfy my hunger. You quench my thirst. You should know you'll always be the first one to come. One to go. <laughs> one to always let me know what you think, how you feel. And it's my heart you will steal. You know that I'm here for you. Well, you know that I am here for the year. If with me you want to be sincere. Ooh, it gets a little wordy there at the end. Oh, how romantic. <laughs> <laughs> this dude's out there. Like I, I hope they broke the mold with him. He's, just, he's a wordsmith, Warren. Yeah. He's a wordsmith. He's, he's gotten away with them. Smitty. As April dragged on, Jasmine was becoming anxious about how long it was taking Jeremy. She wanted him to do it that night that they first discussed it, but he wanted to wait. He said that they couldn't be suspicious. His friend Jordan was living on the couch in the tiny trailer, and he was getting freaked out when he overheard them planning. After finishing off a six-pack, he heard Jeremy tell her that he would think about it. Jordan was also claiming that Jeremy was becoming weird the deeper he got. Jordan didn't like that Jeremy was having sex with such a young girl, and his constant moodiness was making everyone walk on eggshells. He didn't have anywhere to go, but he decided to leave after hearing the phone call. When mid-April hit, Jeremy was getting incredibly stressed out. Jeremy and Grant Bolt sat in his truck and shared a joint. Jeremy asked Grant how far he would go for love. He explained that Jasmine was going to break up with him if he kept backing out of killing Mark and Deborah. Grant was small and frail. He lived off of government assistant checks, and Jeremy said he needed him. He was just too scared to kill alone, and he needed a partner. Grant answered with a, Go fuck yourself. And Jeremy could not believe that his friend would not help him for the greater good. The greater good. The greater good. Jeremy ended up throwing a party that a few 14-year-old girls and some of his older friends attended. Jeremy's plan was to get drunk. He went through a 12-pack and raided his mom's beer supply. While he smoked two bowls of pot, he took shots straight from the bottle of vodka. As Jeremy was getting higher, Jasmine was relaxing. She drew herself a bubble bath and informed her friend that she couldn't hang out the next day. She was going to be busy. So she was just chilling and Jeremy was out getting crunk. Yep. And apparently that night her family had like a really nice barbecue. They ate outside and just, you know, so we're in, we're in Canada and I was going to say the all-American family, but you know, they had burgers and hot dogs, macaroni salad, pie, things like that. So what are you trying to say? Like Canada isn't part of the Americas, eh? I guess it's, it's... I think this might be part of the Americas, eh? I guess. I was thinking more of just like United States when I said All-American, but I guess that's not right. That's not America's. Okay, so, well... America's is a lot more than just the United States, eh? They had a barbecue, and it was really nice. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So it's just kind of, and then she draws herself this nice bubble bath. And Don't she, be disrespecting the Canadians. I, I'm not, I'm not, like I said, I, I have that blood in me, so. 
But she just drew herself this really nice bubble bath and like put her favorite music on and, you know, probably moisturized and painted her nails, all the things that girls do when they want to have a relaxing night. I don't know. Like me, I I listen to scary stories. Yeah, murder. I listen to murder when I want to relax. Drink a glass of wine. But Jeremy would start to become reckless and desperate. He drove to Jordan's girlfriend's house. He begged for help to kill his girlfriend's family. Jordan kicked Jeremy out, telling him to not involve him in his plans. Jeremy returned to his trailer pissed. He had a girl who had a crush on him buy him cigarettes, and he and his friends watched natural-born killers. As everyone was coming down and falling asleep, Jeremy was in his truck driving away. Jeremy first hit up his friend Cam's house. Cam was also a Coke dealer. Jeremy snorted about six lines, according to Cam, for courage, and he continued to chain smoke weed. The next item on their list was to binge on the bottle of vodka and a bottle of the blood of the vine, which was the wine for vampires. Um, This brand of wine is very popular around New Orleans and is sold at the it's sold at the Anne Rice fan club conventions. Um, and I was going to make some kind of joke, like, why is he drinking vampire wine if he's a werewolf? This is true. This is, this is true. He's a 300-year-old werewolf drinking vampire wine. I think he, I don't think that's, I don't think that's all right. I don't think that, I don't think you're allowed to do that. Yeah, and no, no disrespect to anybody that goes to these conventions or drinks that or anything. It's just, I looked it up, and it's just mainly, it's just, basic red wine for the fans you know because it has the fancy bottle and it says the official wine of the vampires and everything like that and that's that culture is really huge in new orleans and stuff like that so i just i I wonder how his werewolf friends would feel knowing that he was partaking of the enemy's (laughs) juice i don't i don't know well like we were saying his favorite movie was probably rise of the lichens and that was when the vampire and werewolf dna combined all right the night of partying had just begun when the booze was gone cam's 15 year old girlfriend jenny came out of the bedroom with more drugs she offered him ecstasy and jeremy was rolling hard he bought two grams of coke and was back on the road So remember who Jenny is. She's going to play an important part later. Knowing that he would be seeing Jasmine soon, he stopped at a gas station to buy a pack of gum because she hated the smell and taste of smoke. While in the parking lot, he snorted the two grams of Coke and headed to his dark princess's house. Jeremy noticed that the moon was only a sliver and he couldn't rely on his inner werewolf to help him out. So he tried to channel all his anger, dark poetry, and his inner Mickey Knox to rescue his own Mallory. And I'm just thinking, like, how did he not explode? With all that booze he drank, all that coke that he snorted, like, I just, and then the ecstasy on top of that, and then all the weed, I just don't see how, like, his body just didn't say, like, okay, bro, I think it's time we go to sleep. Well, you don't sleep with that many uppers in your body. Well, he was, like, mixing uppers and downers, so I just, I don't know. When he arrived at Jasmine's house... 
God, man. Mike Tyson over here. Mike Tyson. <laughs> Mike Tyson. Where she arrived at Javin House. Killing me, Smalls. You're killing oh, me. Oh shit! When he arrived at Jasmine's house, he threw pine cones. <laughs> Should I say Jasmine's? No, I just think of the house again. Stop! <laughs> just thinking about that house. <laughs> Sorry, start over. When he arrived at Jasmine's house, he threw pine cones at her window. When she saw him, she gave him the signal that the basement window would be unlocked. With his heart pounding, he squeezed in through the window, the same one that Jasmine would use when she would sneak out to see him. He was a lot bigger than Jasmine, and he was clumsy and loud when he tried to squeeze in through the small window. There was so much noise that Deborah woke up. She thought it was her daughter trying to sneak back in or out. Trying to catch her in the act, she rushed downstairs in her favorite blue nightgown and turned the lights on. She stood like a deer in the headlights when she saw a figure standing there that wasn't her daughter. Jeremy was dressed in all black, fishnet arm stockings, leather wristbands, a bandana covering the lower half of his face, and his classic black eyeliner. Jeremy suddenly pulled a knife from his hoodie and lunged. Deborah was a lioness and fought back hard, but when she had to put up her arms to block Jeremy as he was wildly slashing, he went for her exposed torso. Mark quickly appeared running down the stairs in black boxer shorts when he awoke to his wife screaming. Armed with a screwdriver, Mark stood in horror as a large black figure stood up over his slain soulmate, blood soaking through her gown. When Jeremy turned to face Mark, they both remained still. Mark came at Jeremy, swinging the screwdriver as hard as he could. Jeremy was beginning to panic. 200 pounds of pure rage was easily overpowering him. Mark knocked him down and began to stab Jeremy with the screwdriver. Jeremy was able to slash at Mark's hands, causing him to be disarmed. But Mark was fighting to save his family, and he slammed his fist down onto Jeremy's eye. Jasmine appeared at the top of the stairs and saw her boyfriend and dad fighting and ran upstairs to keep Jacob contained. Mark dug his thumbs into Jeremy's eyes and with a loud scream, he was able to wiggle his left arm free and he just began stabbing repeatedly. He pushed Mark off of him and attempted to flee up the stairs. He suddenly fell when Mark grabbed his pant leg and dragged him back down the stairs. Even though he was losing a lot of blood, he found the strength to begin to strangle Jeremy. Who are you? Mark screamed as his grip started to weaken. Jeremy took the opportunity to jab him a couple more times. Mark dropped to his knees, looked up at him and whispered, Why? His breathing heavy, Jeremy lowered the bandana that hit his face. Because you treat your daughter like shit. It's what your daughter wanted. <sighs> Jeremy waited until Mark collapsed and succumbed to his injuries. Jasmine was waiting for him in the kitchen. She gave Jeremy a big kiss and an I love you before she ran back upstairs. Jeremy waited for her as he caught his breath. When she didn't come back, he went upstairs to find her and was met with commotion. 
Jacob was awake and was pleading with his sister to tell him what was happening. She put his neck in the hook of her arm and began to squeeze. What are you doing? Jacob cried, but Jasmine just squeezed harder and whispered, Go to sleep. Jacob dug his fingernails into his sister's arm, breaking her grip. He ran into the hall, but was blocked by Jeremy, soaked in blood, staggering up the stairs, dragging his sleeve along the wall to leave a street. We can't leave him, Jasmine told Jeremy when he appeared in Jacob's doorway. Jacob had tried to fight just like his dad. His purple bedroom would be soaked in his blood. The carpet in the doorway, his toys, his bed, and his toy lightsaber that he had tried to defend himself with. Jeremy went back down the stairs as Jasmine washed the blood off of her hands and knife in the bathroom, leaving a pink puddle in the sink and knife on the counter. How scary. Like, can you imagine being, I think her brother is like between eight and ten. I can't quite remember his name, his age. I think he's eight. And this little motherfucker's over here trying to s- summon the force to defend himself from his sister and her boyfriend. Yeah, and then can you imagine like trying to run from your sister because she's trying to choke you, and then you're met with that sight? You're met with stanky. Yeah. You're met with stanky. Standing there soaked in blood, blood and like dragging his stanky. sleeve up, dragging his sleeve up the side of the hallway and shit. Like, this is Here's stanky. So sad hate it (laughs) she went down to instruct jeremy to wait 15 to 20 minutes for her but jeremy was paranoid and nervous he saw the neighbor's lights come on i can't breathe jeremy gasped and he went to leave you can't just leave me here jasmine yelled as she grabbed his arm he yanked his arm out of her grasp and motioned for her to keep her voice down i'm going outside for air hurry up he hissed to her However, not even one minute passed before Jeremy was in full panic mode. As Jasmine stuffed a backpack with clothes in her mom's purse, Jeremy was running down the street to his mother's truck. He raced back to the trailer park and ended up vomiting all over the front porch. Jasmine was shocked that when she exited the house, she was alone. So he just, he just bounced out. (laughs) Like he GTO'd out of there. Peace. Now it was Jasmine's turn to panic. She just began to blow over the phone at Jeremy's trailer. A sleepy roommate of Jeremy's answered the phone at 5.15 a.m. Mike told Jasmine that Jeremy wasn't home and she had to find her own ride. She called a cab from a number that she found in a phone book and ran to the 7-Eleven by her house to get money out of the ATM. Without saying a word to the clerk, she drained her parents' account and when she got back home, the cab was already waiting for her. In the 10 minutes it took to get to Jeremy's trailer, Jasmine gave very vague answers to the driver's attempt of small talk. When she arrived, Jeremy was at the door waiting for her. He was freshly showered, and his eye was swollen. He hugged her, and they sat down on the bed kissing. Jeremy stopped to place some items in a plastic bag and told her they had to go. They went to Cam's apartment building and tossed the bag into the dumpster. When they knocked on the door, Cam and Jenny were still awake and still high. He let them in and was shocked to see Jeremy's broken face. Jenny got Jeremy some ice and Cam got quiet when Jeremy asked him about cleaning blood off of knives. 
Jenny offered the bedroom to the exhausted couple, and they disappeared behind the closed door. <sighs> this part made my stomach turn. Jeremy and Jasmine undressed and slid into bed, but she couldn't close her eyes. She was upset and cuddled up next to Jeremy for comfort. They started kissing and had sex. Regardless, Jasmine still couldn't sleep. She just listened to Jeremy snoring until her body eventually shut down. So, once again, young offenders, it's either sex, eating, or party. So, when she woke up with Jeremy, it was already mid-afternoon. She munched on some stale Cheerios that was on the headboard, and Jeremy looked for a bottle, but they were all empty. Jenny felt sick, so Cam, Jeremy, and Jasmine went to the liquor store. It just so happened to be across the street from the 7-Eleven that was down the street from Jasmine's house. Jacob's best friend, Gareth, lived just a few doors down the street. He was running to see if Jacob wanted to play. He was supposed to stay the night, but Jacob and his parents were going to a hockey game, so Gareth stayed home. When he knocked on the door, he was a little confused that the house was quiet. The car was in the driveway, but it was like the house was empty. Gareth decided to try and peek through the windows. He finally made it to the basement window to discover the bloody massacre of Deborah and Mark's bodies on the floor. He ran as fast as he could home and told his mother what he had just seen. His mother, Sarah, went to the Richardson's house and gasped when she saw that what her son said was true. As Jasmine sat in the truck, waiting for the boys, applying eyeliner, the police were already searching the house. So she just doesn't even care. She's just sitting in the truck waiting for the guys to get out of the liquor store putting eyeliner on and just doesn't have a care in the world. The crime scene was one of the worst that the Medicine Hat police force had ever seen. They found Mark and Deborah in the basement. Mark was found on his back, coated in blood with multiple stab wounds. It was clear that he fought like a warrior. Deborah was sitting upright against the back of the couch. Her gown was soaked from the holes in her stomach. But the worst part of the scene was upstairs. The police followed the blood streak along the wall and first encountered the hallway. There was a pink bedroom that was completely undisturbed. In the purple bedroom, blood splatter was on every surface. Jacob lay on his right side in his underwear and his throat had been cut. A couple of the police never got over the heaviness of the scene. A family photo was found and there was one who was missing. They did a second body check and were afraid that they were dealing with a missing person on top of three homicides. We interrupt this program to bring you a palate cleanser brought to you by Dallas. So my family, we have always been really big into fishing. <clears throat> my grandpa, huge fisherman, my dad, huge fisherman. You take me fishing ever since I was a little kid, ever since I was able to walk. And we'd go down to the river and a lot of times I wouldn't fish cause I was so young, but he would take me along and have a little father son bonding time. And so a lot of times I'd want to swim. And if you're swimming in a river, it's very, very dangerous because there's a lot of undercurrent that can carry you for miles, suck you under you. A lot of people drown in rivers. And so, and me being so young, my dad was like, oh, I'm not risking that. So he would t put a PFD on me, 
which is a life jacket. Normally, a lot of people call them life jackets, but they are not, uh, they don't save your life. You know, they just help you float. Personal flotation device. Because if you were to put on a life jacket or a PFD and climb to the top of a tree and fall off, it's not going to save your life. All right, Colin Robinson. If you were to get mauled by a bear with a PFD on, it's not going to save your life, but it will help you float. So a personal flotation device, he would put it on me and he would tie, he tied a rope around a tree and then tied the rope to my PFD. And he's like, yeah, he thought I was just going to kind of wade out in the little shallow water and, you know, just kind of get my feet wet. But he said, I did like an Olympic dive out into the water and he just like made his jaw drop like, whoa, damn. Back in Jeremy and Jasmine land, everything was just perfect. Her parents were gone, and there was no one that was going to keep them apart. And classic Jeremy wrote a song for her to celebrate their newfound freedom. I, I left it out. I thought that we could uh, all live without that one. After a shower and a change of clothes, the couple attended a house party. The house was a well-known party spot for teenagers and young adults. The turnover rates for tenants of the house were quick, and most of them were drug dealers. But the party was at its peak when the two arrived. Music was cranked up, and everyone was drunk. And this is like a midday party. This is not like at night. This is at like 1, 11, like between 11 and 1 o'clock in the afternoon. Damn. Yeah. Jeremy was excited to be able to introduce Jasmine to as his pretty little girlfriend to his friends. TJ, Tyler, and Grant sat around the couch and listened to Jeremy's story about how his eye got fucked up. TJ poured Jasmine a solo cup of cherry whiskey as a girl named Belinda, carrying a three-month-old baby in her arms, approached the group. She was dating Tyler, and she introduced herself to Jasmine, and the two women talked about the baby. Belinda recalls that both Jasmine and Jeremy were happy and upbeat. She did become embarrassed, though, when Jasmine and Jeremy began, quote-unquote, going for it on the couch. With about 24 people present, Jasmine was straddling Jeremy, and the couple was making out and giggling as they whispered to each other's ears. Hands would wander, and Jasmine was clearly the aggressor. Gross. A boy named James showed up to the house, and he had been friends with Jeremy for a long time. Unlike most of his friends, he had a job. He was just there to grab the last of his belongings since he was moving. Jeremy followed him into the bedroom and had word vomit. I killed my girlfriend's parents. James stood there stunned as Jasmine walked in with a grin on her face. My little brother gurgled. James left the house quickly without saying a word, and he never went back. At 2.30 p.m., Jenny and a girl named Casey showed up at the party. Casey had a crush on Jeremy, so when he asked for a favor, she would always jump through any hoop it took. He wanted her to clean his mother's truck out and move it. So with Casey driving Jeremy's truck and Jenny following in Casey's Mazda, they drove to a wooded area. She parked behind some bushes and her and Jenny began to wipe everything down in the truck. 
Casey did her best to make sure every surface had been wiped and all the trash was removed. When they returned to the party in the Mazda, Jeremy was agitated and paranoid. The news about the murders was being broadcast on TV and everyone was watching. The police first move in finding Jasmine was going to learn more about her. Constable Gordon Stoll went to Jasmine's school and met with the guidance counselor, Sandra, and she had a lot to tell him. At first, Sandra was worried about Jasmine and how scared she must be, but her worry turned to horror after she opened Jasmine's locker and thumbed through some papers. She brought them to Stoll, who looked over the paper. It was a comic strip that Jasmine drew that depicted her and Jeremy killing her parents and setting everything on fire. Stoll had her return the papers and left to get a search warrant. So I will... (laughs) I will post a picture of this comic strip that she drew and it is basically it's all stick figures and she labels everything like Jeremy's truck gasoline and then she shows like three people running around saying ah, my flesh is burning and then it shows her and Jeremy laughing like ha 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 as they walk off into the sunset. Um, so I will try to find a picture of that. And um, I'll post it on the Instagram at spooky.talk.podcast. Gotta have the dots. Gotta have the dots. By 7.15 p.m., Jasmine was no longer a missing girl, but a murder suspect. They knew that she was dating Jeremy and that she most likely helped him with the murders. They released her picture to the media and tips were beginning to roll in. Rumors also circulated that Jasmine had met a predator online and he had abducted her. Um, So before they found out, before they kind of realized that she was a suspect, um, because, you know, when when a minor commits a crime, they're not allowed to have their picture shown unless they're being charged as an adult. And since they had they showed Jasmine's picture because she was a missing person so that's why people knew who she was that made this case explode even more um cuz they should have kept her identity a secret but they thought she was a missing person at first so there was a lot of controversy about that that we'll get into for the case later James saw the news and began to sob when Jeremy told him that he had killed his girlfriend's parents He thought it was a sick joke. Jeremy was known for saying really off-the-wall shit. James told his friend, and she begged him to call the police. He was involved now, whether he liked it or not. James debated for a little bit, but finally decided to do what was right. He almost didn't because there was a warrant for his arrest. He wasn't the only friend of Jeremy's that appeared at the station. Jordan was there, sobbing, rattled, while giving a statement. So, you know, it's like, well, (laughs) when you know, you know. Jeremy and Jasmine began to panic when they found out from a 13-year-old runaway named Kaylee that the cops were looking for them. With Kaylee, Casey, and Jenny in the front of the Mazda, Jeremy threw a sleeping bag, pillows, and he and Jasmine's backpacks into the bed of the truck. He and Jasmine hid under the canopy and Casey went to pick up her friend Mick so they could all lay low at his place for a little bit. At 5.30 a.m., a rookie named Aaron Ewart knew about the murders, and he had a hunch that the runners would need gas. At 7 a.m., he was correct. 
Casey's gray Mazda truck pulled up to the pumps and three teenage girls dressed in all black ran inside the convenience store. They had spent the night in the truck after dropping Mick off at home. His mom would not let them stay, so she found a place to park and the five of them smoked weed and slept. The girls only stopped to use the bathroom. They were low on gas and were even lower on money. When getting Jasmine a bottle of water, Casey saw the current issue of the Medicine Hat News, and it had Jasmine's school picture on the front page. They bought the paper and quickly showed it to the couple. Jeremy just laughed and said it didn't even look like her. I'm sure it did since it was her fucking school picture. (laughs) Unfortunately, those pictures make you look exactly like you are. Kaylee said that they had to stay out of sight. Casey drove to the parking lot of Composite High School, and Ewart was following closely behind. Jenny volunteered her grandparents' cabin in Pine Lake, located in central Alberta. Jasmine tried to come up with a believable alibi. Ewart had called for backup at this point, and Constable Andre Gallant arrived. The two officers decided to move in. Gallant approached the front, and one of the girls motioned to the back. Ewart lifted the window to the canopy and saw a blanket with a lump under it. He pulled the tailgate down and yanked the blanket back to reveal Jasmine and Jeremy, and she didn't have any pants on. Ewart arrested Jasmine and put her in the back of his car. As Jeremy was being forced into a separate car, he shouted, (laughs) Tell my mom that she can have my TV and that I love her. The the three girls were laying face down on the pavement, getting arrested one by one. When they were placed in the car with Jasmine, the four were more worried about if Jeremy was going to be charged with rape since Jasmine was in her underwear. One of the girls suggested that Jasmine should say that one of the officers raped her when they did a search on her. Jasmine giggled and said, It wouldn't be sexy even if it was a hot cop because I still like Jeremy. When they reached the station, Jasmine was placed in a cell while the other three girls remained in the car. When he went to check on Jeremy, he lunged at the window like an animal. When the girls were brought into the station, they were making unauthorized phone calls, throwing tantrums, and tried to say that they were on a two-day camping trip. Sergeant Brandeth was given the task of driving Jasmine to the Medicine Hat station. The drive was mostly quiet, but she apologized when she spilled some iced tea he had bought her on the seat. Brandeth decided to be firm with her. He explained her rights and she would have and that she would have a bail hearing. He was shocked when Jasmine replied, "What's a bail hearing?" Less than 30 hours after the bodies were discovered, Jasmine and Jeremy were both charged with three counts of first-degree murder of Mark, Deborah, and Jacob Richardson. With Jasmine being 12, she was the youngest person charged with murder in Canada, so she easily became a major headline for news outlets. Many rumors formed with high-profile cases. Many remarks were made about the goth crowd, their social media accounts, and the music they listened to. The city was on edge and was experiencing its own form of satanic panic. So this makes me think of one of the most unjust cases in the world, uh, the West Memphis Three. Because 
obviously nobody gives a shit about who killed those boys down there because they still have the three boys, um, Damien, Jason, and Jesse, I believe their names are. They still have them written as guilty. So technically they're saying that the case is closed. But regardless, it's just kind of, you know, they focused on the goth crowd and saying like, oh, you know, the way they dress and their music, that's why this happened, that it's it's all their fault. Like, they're trying to not give ownership to a 12-year-old girl. Yeah, kind of like with Columbine, how they were trying to blame it on Marilyn Manson and yeah. the music that the kids were listening to. And it, no, those were two fucked up kids that did that, not Marilyn Manson. <laughs> As the identity of the victims was released, Mark's co-workers were shocked and numb. Jacob's school offered grief counseling for any students that felt the need to talk, and the flag was lowered to half-mast. The community was feeling the effects of the innocence a medicine hat was ripped out from under them. Sergeant Sheehan and Sergeant Cole were the investigators assigned to the case. They were watching Jasmine from a surveillance camera in the interrogation room and she sat motionless in her jumpsuit, her hair hanging, shielding her face. Sheenhan brought her a burger from McDonald's to get her to open up and start talking. He knew that it was going to be tricky to question the girl due to Canada's Youth Criminal Act. The youth must sign a contract every time they are spoken to. They had to be very specific about their questions and even had to ask um, that they're not answering to please. It's to make sure that the youth is not being uninformed or not understanding the severity of not knowing basic rights. So basically you have to be, so where were you were, where were you at 5 30 PM on Thursday of this day of this specific month? So you have to be very, and then you have to say, is that your truthful answer? Or are you saying that to, because you think that's what I want to hear. And you have to be very, very careful because a lot of it could be thrown out. Cole tried to crack Jasmine first with his graying hair and mustache. They decided for him to try and be like a father figure to her. The more he tried to pry answers out of her just made her push back harder. He even tried to convince her that she would be tried as an adult and get life in prison. This was not true, though. The cutoff age was 14, and she was too young, but Jasmine would not budge. She asked to talk to Raven, but Cole told her that she would have to wait until the investigation first. Cole decided to trade off with Sheehan. Being only 35 gave him the quote-unquote cool guy vibe, and having dark hair, blue eyes, and handsome features made him easy to talk to. He also wore glasses that were trendy at the time, giving him an urban hipness, and he was exactly what Jasmine liked. He even introduced himself by his first name, Chris. After a bit of small talk and a bit of teasing Jasmine about how she wrote the letter S, she said, I like you. You smell good. Seeing his opportunity, he took it. He asked her if she liked Marilyn Manson. They began talking about bands, and Sheehan was able to fake his way through the conversation. He knew the names of bands, but not the music. But when he started to steer the conversation towards the murders, Jasmine said that she had a stomach ache and wanted a lawyer. By 3.20 p.m., Jasmine was back in the room with Sheehan because she recanted her statement of wanting a lawyer. 
She wanted to talk, but it was far from the truth what she told him. Her first story was that she snuck out to go party and Jeremy brought her back home. When she walked in, Jeremy surprised her with her family's butchered bodies, but she didn't want them dead. It was a misunderstanding. Sheehan placed a hand on her shoulder and said, He didn't prepare you? Didn't say anything? You can't tell me half of the truth. Jasmine changed her story a little bit. She explained how Jeremy wanted Casey to ditch the truck, and she knew he was downstairs. She told Sheehan that Jeremy had killed all three. She just wanted to get her stuff and run away. But when he pressured her about Jacob, she admitted that she first tried to strangle him, but she had the knife, and Jeremy was ordering her to stab him. She claimed that she stabbed him once in the chest, and Jacob kept crying, I'm too young to die. Over and over, she said that Jeremy had to finish the job, and he did it out of love for her. Sheehan placed his arm around Jasmine as she sobbed. He pushed a pad of paper and a pen in front of her. Would you like to write a nice apology letter to your mom, dad, and brother? He left the room so she could write her letter. Dear my loverly parental units, I am writing in response to the events of Sunday morning. A terrible thing happened and something I felt was my fault. You must know I love you all dearly and are in my prayers. I wish peace upon your souls in the Summerland. To my little brother, I apologize for letting you hear what happened, also for causing you any pain and for frightening you so much. To my parents, I hope you know that all that has happened, I love you. I hope you know that all that has happened, I love you the whole while. I wish I could take everything back. I wish it hadn't happened. I wish you were with me right now, because now I have no one. I pray you can forgive me, and Jeremy too, because he was under the influence of mind-altering substance and did it out of love for me. He is most possibly the kindest person I've ever met, his wish being for my happiness. Though all my fights and hatred exchanged, I still loved you. I am so sorry my sarcasm was taken to heart. I never meant to harm you. I pray that you can be at peace somehow. So that letter seemed kind of, you know. She stole that from the song. I never meant to hurt you. Never meant to make you cry. Yeah, she a song. Stole straight from the song. Sheehan also offered to pass notes to Jeremy when she wrote her first love letter. Doctor Craig Litwin was starting the autopsy of her family. Each autopsy took a little over two hours. Jacob had four stab wounds total. The locations were to the right side of his face, and they were two point five centimeters deep but the large wound on his neck that severed his jugular vein and thyroid gland was fatal. He also found evidence in Jacob's eyes that was a result of strangulation. Because I guess you get like the busted blood vessels and stuff so they could see if you were strangled or smothered. Or Deborah had 12 stab wounds. Her aorta was punctured along with both lungs. Her stomach was sliced open. Mark had 24 stab wounds. Most were to his back, puncturing his lungs and right abdomen. Both had defensive cuts on their hands and arms. Deborah died due to the stab wound to her heart. 
However, none of Mark's injuries were fatal. He died to the massive amount of blood loss he suffered due to the amount of them. With the adrenaline pumping, it was causing him to lose blood faster. Sergeant Sheehan was ready to sit and try to get something out of Jeremy. He hoped by passing him Jasmine's note, it might make Jeremy more willing to trust him. Jeremy appeared before Provincial Court Judge Darwin Greaves. There was an audience of young teen girls crying and shocked young men hiding under their black hoodies. There were dozens of familiar faces that showed up to Jeremy and Jasmine's first appearances. While Jasmine's friends grieved over the loss of their friends, Jasmine's extended family had a funeral to plan. The family was too distraught and asked for privacy. Jeremy and Sheehan sat across the table from each other, and Sheehan was laying out all of the evidence he had. The poorly cleaned truck, bloody clothes in a plastic bag, Jasmine's confession, and the blood in his trailer. Jeremy, however, remained silent. Sheehan decided to poke a little harder and ask if he was a monster. He said that Jasmine's confession almost made him cry because it was just a sad, scared little girl that was manipulated by a dangerous man that she met on the internet. He showed Jeremy the chat logs and emails of all of his dark poetry and the murder planning. Jeremy still didn't bow. Sheehan tried a heavier accusation. He said that Jasmine told him how he really hurt his eye. With Jeremy close to tears, his voice cracked. You're putting this all on me? She told me. She said she wanted it. He listened as Jeremy told his side. He claimed that he tried to talk Jasmine out of it, but she didn't want to hear it. He talked about the number of drugs he took just to be able to do it. And he said that Mark just came at him and he was scared shitless. He confessed he would do anything for Jasmine and that she was so perfect. He didn't end up dropping a bomb that Sheehan was not expecting. He put the blame of Jacob's death all on Jasmine. He didn't end up dropping a bomb that Sheehan was not expecting. He put the blame of Jacob's death all on Jasmine. He admitted that he had killed Mark and Deborah, but was very adamant that he did not touch Jacob. He even owned up to having sex with Jasmine. He became agitated when Sheehan really pushed him to say that he killed Jacob. Emotionally exhausted, Jeremy shut down and Sheehan left the room. He returned with a notepad and pen so Jeremy could write to Jasmine. There's only so much the bonds of flesh can do to the soul. Dear Jazz, kisses. I'm sorry. I'm so very sorry. I love you with all my heart and that will never change. I broke. I confessed. I'm sorry. I love you. I truly do. And I hope that one day I might be able to gaze into your eyes once again. I slept with your note in my hand every night. The only thing pushing me through this is the thought of you. I wish we could just go back in time and run, run far away and never look back. Never forget how much you mean to me or how much I love you. Without you, I feel so empty and wish I could just die. No matter what, I'm with you in mind and spirit. Once this time comes, I hope to be with you in body too. Keep this note close to your heart. If I can write again, I shall. Kisses, Jeremy. Jasmine responded the next day. Dear my loverly Bastine, please don't be sorry. I'm the one who needs to be begging for forgiveness. If only we ran, yes, but don't obsess on what could have been. 
In due time, we shall have our castle. I am not whole without you. I love you with everything I am and never stop, and my promises shall be kept. However desolate it seems and shall become, take it one day at a time. It can only get so bad before it gets better. I will be with you in spirit. I hope you're doing all right. However large a task, please don't stress out too much. Having your sanity might be helpful. More than anything, I wish to be with you and hold you again. But until the time comes, know I love you. XOXO. Enjoy in sorrow, my sweet 666. Jazz. Jeremy's mother, May, was distraught about her jailed son. She was not getting any help, and she hadn't spoken to or seen Jeremy in over a week. She had been out drinking with friends when the police located her. She watched helplessly as her trailer was torn apart by police. Casey did her best to comfort her by telling her what Jeremy said about his TV. (laughs) You can have my TV, Mom. I love you. Jeremy and Jasmine were lost in their love letters that Sheehan was passing back and forth to them. Must be one nice-ass TV if it's consolation for your son going to prison. Or it's like the only TV in the house. And I, I have a feeling, too, that they thought that this cop was not reading their letters for some like, they just, they, they pour it all out. Dear Cuddle Buddy, I'm sure that you are, I'm sure that you are right. What's done is done. You need not ask for my forgiveness. Indeed, in due time, our empire shall be complete. Before you, I was half, and now that I am whole, I can't go back to being half. You're the one that I breathe. You're, the, you're my moon when it breaks through the clouds at night. You're all that I need. I long to feel your soft skin. I yearn for your kisses, for they could get me high. I hope that you, I hope that you stay true to your words. My entire faith has been bestowed unto you. With your words, I shall remain strong for you. Sometimes I have trouble sleeping at night. But I'm sure the thought of you before we get through the night. Fuck. I I know. The way he writes it, it it doesn't make sense. It's like they try to be way smarter than they are here. (laughs) It's like they throw in extra words trying to sound smart, but then it, it just makes it one big old wordy fucking mess. Yeah. Sometimes I have trouble sleeping at night. (laughs) But I'm sure the thought of you before we get through the nights. Still don't make the fucking sense. In time, in due time, we shall be together once again. But until that day arrives, stay strong, keep hope, and have faith. I love you with all my heart and soul. Never forget that, okay, my love? Till we speak again. XOXOXO, Jeremy. Jesus. Jeremy. Come on, buddy. I'm not your buddy, pal. I'm not your pal, friend. But wait, there's more. P.S. You said you want to get engaged. Then here's a cue. Will you marry me? If so, then it's a verbal agreement. Dear Jazz, I love you more than life itself. I've added you to my visitors list, so once you're released, (laughs) please visit after. Never forget how much I care or that I love you. We can keep visiting each other till we can get together again. I will. Without you, this life isn't worth living. Kisses. The thought of being with you is all that is helping me to stay somewhat sane. 
We shall be together again, I promise. Stay true to your promises, and I shall to mine. Casey continues to lie. I wish I could hold you right now. Stay strong and continue to write me, please. I need you. I love you. I miss you. Kisses, XOXO, your lover, Jeremy. Can you imagine what their wedding vows are probably going to be like? Like, Jasmine, I want you to rot in the bowels of hell with me for all eternity. It, uh, these two. My soul is black, and so is yours. <laughs> I'm so glad we're finally getting part two out of the way because I've just had enough of Jeremy <laughs> and Jasmine. May my heart become cold to all others. Dear Jeremy, ah! I never thought I'd find myself hysterically laughing in a holding cell in these kind of circumstances, or ever really, but still, ah, you made me so happy. Yes, yes, I will. I would love to. Of course, I'll come visit you. I have to find where you're being held. Oh, God, I'm so happy. I must be happily insane then. Either way, apparently, I get a psychiatrist. Interesting information I came across. Anything you say to anyone, including a psychiatrist, unless issued by a lawyer, can be used against you for fuck's sake. Rar. The, would, the world really is against us. Do you have a lawyer yet? Do you know where you're going in the near future? Oh, I wish I could hold you and make you feel better. Erg, I love you so much. I'm going crazy. Have you been in jail before? Ha, I've counted, and at times during the day, a guard will come to see if I'm okay every 90 to 120 seconds, lol. Oh, did Casey happen to be in love with you? We've been in the papers every day, apparently. I haven't seen them, but hopefully can Monday. Everything related to me knows that I'm in jail and whatnot, but I don't know anything other than the charges and seemingly doesn't believe because my auntie says they still love me. Although it was as if I wasn't alive before. Oh, remember that gift I had for you? It was a charm bag I made for your well-being and such. You may think it's stupid, but I put an unusually large amount of effort into it. And I believe that the planetary alignment and everything else that takes months to explain was correct. So it's still helpful, I suppose. I'll pray and reiki you. You will have no choice in the matter. Oh, and in regards to the first time I snuck out, we're safe. I want to be able to talk to you so bad, and I have far too much free time. So when she said we're safe, she was regarding to Jeremy that she was not pregnant. Thank God. After Imagine that Satan spawn. I know, God. birthed into this world. No, thank you. I think we have enough stankies in the world. After many defense lawyers declined to take Jasmine's case, it fell upon a man named Tim Foster. He had read about the murders in the newspaper and even wondered if the case was going to be tossed his way. He met with Sheehan, who informed him of the notes that he was passing and that Jasmine had already admitted to. Foster took a deep breath, and he had never dealt with anything like this before. Regardless of his proposal to Jasmine, talks of undying love and murder, murder. not being able to talk to her was taking its toll. He found comfort in the voice of another 14-year-old Morgan from the Malgoth crowd, and she happened to have a huge crush on Jeremy. She was ecstatic when he called her. Morgan stood outside of the Medicine Hat Romance Center religiously. Other young ladies joined Morgan, and they were all devastated. 
One girl even dropped to her knees, unable to keep herself composed. The crowd was divided, though. Jasmine's supporters had no problem showing their dislike for Jeremy in front of his crowd, and the community found the actions of the teenagers disrespectful. With all the Team Jasmine or Team Jeremy, they lost sight that three innocent people were murdered. There were posters taped to the wall of the school that would be ripped down by other students or faculty. They also went online and pledged their allegiance to Jeremy. A younger girl who went by Squishy wrote, I love you. Fuck what everyone else says. I know what you did. I still love you more than anything ever. You're an amazing friend. I miss you so much. All the memories. Everything. Nothing will be the same without you. The shows. Moshing. Drinking. Slipknot. The mall. Pot. Talking. The list goes on, baby. Nothing will ever be the same. I love you so much, Jeremy Allen Stanky. You are my best friend. Thank you for all the times you've helped me with everything. And now it's time where we need to help you. I support you 150%, sweetheart. Not what you did, but as a friend and best friend, I love and miss you more than anything. (sighs) Another follower by the name Satanic Rose, along with others, claimed that they would mosh for Jeremy. At the punk shows, they all showed up with his football number 43 painted on their cheeks. They would throw themselves as hard as they could into everyone who was close. Jasmine's supporters were pissed. We're going to mosh for Jeremy. Like I'm going to mosh for you, Jeremy. And they go out there and they just do it as hard as they can. But Jasmine's supporters were pissed and fights would break out between the divided teens. The fights went back and forth online as well. It was nothing but disrespect and hate. It's like Edward and Jacob, Team Edward and Team Jacob. That's exactly what it was. (laughs) The families were just beside themselves over the entire ordeal. They were breaking down emotionally and caused many of them nightmares and anxiety. Morgan stood strong against the mourners, her voice steady. He said, see you later. I'm holding him to that. No one really understood what Jeremy was facing. They were so sure that he would get out and be at the mall with them again. May 2nd was the day of Mark, Deborah, and Jacob's funeral. Deborah was described as an angel on earth. Mark was an honest man, generous and loved by his family. And Jacob was a beautiful soul with a heart of gold. Jeremy's supporters made a mockery of the court. They showed up in black hoodies, extreme makeup, and waving a flag that they had made for him. Many were asked to leave due to their rowdiness, and some of them were on the witness list. Morgan was on the list of people who were supposed to testify, so they cut off Jeremy quickly when they found out that he was calling her. Corey Both was an undercover cop they placed in a transfer van with Jeremy. Inmates were saying that he was bragging about the murders and that Jasmine killed her little brother. He also said that she wanted him to do it. Both was a clean-cut, church-going, hard-working man. Since he didn't look like any type of hard-time repeated offender, they gave him a white trash makeover. They shaved the sides of his head to give him a mohawk and an awful handlebar mustache. They gave him dirty clothes to wear and a backstory. He was ready for showtime. On May 4th, they used a bugged van to pick up Jeremy from jail and stopped at the courthouse to pick up both. 
They played it as just a normal daily routine. Both's job was to get Jeremy openly talking about the crime without asking any direct questions about it. Jeremy had to bring it up all on his own. After a few short minutes of small talk, Jeremy began to sing like a canary. He had a smug look on his face and he asked both if he knew the triple homicides and that it was him. He even talked about how he used to kill them and brought up natural born killers, the movie, like he always does. (laughs) He spilled every detail. He told both that when he and Jasmine both get out, he's going to save money and buy her a castle in Germany. And he said it was going to have a million rooms and all their friends could stay there and they were going to have matching ring tattoos and a gothic style wedding. We're going to have matching ring pops. Yeah, and the way he said it, too, he's like, yeah, and I'm going to buy her a castle because she loves that shit. (laughs) Both felt sick when Jeremy exited the van to get his psychiatric evaluation, but he got what he needed, a very detailed confession of the crime. It had been over a year when the trials finally took place. They were charged separately, and Jasmine would be tried as a juvenile. TV news camera and satellite trucks crowded in around the courtroom to try and keep the community updated and be the first with the story. They were shocked when Jasmine entered the courtroom. Her hair was pulled back in a ponytail and she wore a lavender blouse. She looked like the girl next door, not the seductive underage murderer. She sobbed as charges were read and was pathetic when she pled not guilty. So yeah, I think this kind of sucks that she was tried as... A juvenile. I mean, she is only 12, but still, this was a very adult thing she planned. Jasmine tried to keep her composure as witness after witness was called. The jury was given no warning before being shown the crime scene photos, which caused much distress. Jeremy's mother was called in to testify, and she came into the courtroom with her oxygen tank and wearing Jeremy's letterman's jacket. She had moved out of the area due to harassment. All of Jasmine's school friends testified that she did talk often of killing her parents. Did she bring the TV into the courtroom? I know, right? It doesn't say? <laughs> no, it doesn't say. He is not a bad boy. He, she... he gave me this TV when he went off to jail. That's not a killer right there. That's a good boy. <laughs> she has it in like a shopping cart. <laughs> Jeremy's trial wasn't going well either. The friends that he had that were called to the stand were high school dropouts, drug addicts, or homeless. Between the ages of 15 and 23, they talked of their own tragic lives and claimed that the substance made their memories foggy. With the damaging testimonies, Jasmine's lawyer, Foster, took the risk of putting her on the stand. Jasmine meekly told her story as Foster painted her as a young, love-struck girl who was manipulated by a predator. But Jasmine became starry-eyed when talking about her relationship with Jeremy She made him sound like a wonderful man and that he had sex with her after the murders because he wanted to make her feel better. Her demeanor changed when Foster shifted the subject to the murders, though. Jasmine cried as she told the story of how she had found Jacob huddled in his room terrified. First, she had tried to strangle him, but couldn't, and Jeremy was the one who wanted her to kill him. Jasmine said she already had the knife claiming that she always has it in her room because she and her friends cut themselves with it. She had just poked him in the chest with it, and that's when Jeremy got mad. He grabbed the knife and slit Jacob's throat and stabbed him multiple times. When he was done, he came out of the room like a zombie and handed her the knife. She washed the blood off in the bathroom sink and left the knife there. 
On cross-examination, Stephanie Cleary tore Jasmine to shreds. She was easily poking hole after hole in her story and was obviously not impressed. The case that clearly laid out after dragging Jasmine through the mud had made a large impression on the jury. They found Jasmine guilty of all three counts of murder in the first degree. Reporters even referred to her as the new Carla Homoka. Carla Homoka. And Paul Bernardo. So last podcast on the left does a pretty good uh, Ken and Barbie killers one. They do everything in a Canadian accent that they could do much better than myself. And uh, but I personally, we might do Carla Homoka one day, but I. But fuck that Paul Bernardo guy. (laughs) I just don't see how they really compare her to Carla Homoka, just besides maybe that she's pretty and that she killed a kid. But I mean, like Carla Homoka and Paul fucking Bernardo, they were they were really bad people. These they're bad people too, but like do you see what I'm saying? Like I don't really see why they're comparing the two because these cases are way different. It doesn't have she doesn't kill her parents. She kills her sister and like four innocent young girls. So, I don't know. I just thought it was kind of weird. She was sentenced to 6 years, followed by 4 years of supervision. She was able to receive intensive rehabilitation, custody and supervision. And this allowed her to get treatment for any mental illness that she may have. During this time, she was diagnosed with oppositional defiant disorder and was showing signs of sociopathic behavior. With her being diagnosed with these illnesses, it made her eligible for the program IRCS. This allowed her to get up to $1 million in taxpayer-supported mental health care. It would also show that with proper psychiatric care, Jasmine would be able to be a productive member of society. Within the 18 months that Jasmine already served, her sentence was reduced to four years in custody and four years of community supervision and probation. She will be out of custody when she is 18. With her not having to discuss her youth record, she changed her name and became a ghost. The community was outraged because she could be a teacher or a healthcare provider, and no one would know. With the discovery of Jeremy's tainted jury, the trial was relocated, but with the amount of evidence stacked against him, it didn't really matter. Jeremy was placed on the stand, where he crashed and burned. He was sentenced to 25 years, life without parole. He will spend the rest of his life behind bars. With Jasmine getting an identity change, she bounced off and is just living her life. She never had contact with Jeremy again. The world will miss the light that Mark, Deborah, and Jacob brought through them. Poor Jacob would never receive the true justice he deserved since who killed him still goes unanswered. Both Jeremy and Jasmine blamed each other, but hopefully the three Richardsons are at peace wherever they are. So much that for that uh, I love you forever bullshit. Yeah, like as soon as... As soon as he realized that he's not going to be able to talk to Jasmine, all of a sudden he switches to a different girl. Well, and then she changed her name and just bounced out like, peace. Yeah, peace. Peace, and... bro. You 300-year-old werewolf ass. <laughs> yep, so he, so Jeremy will die in prison because the way that, I don't know if Canada changed the laws by this time where when this story takes place, but back in like the early 90s, 
um, with the whole Carla, Mahol- Carla Homolka bullshit. Carla Homolka. Carla Homolka. She, uh, so Paul got 25 years. And what happens is they serve that 25 years. And then after that is when they decide whether or not you can get out. So Paul Bernardo will never get out because they labeled him a dangerous offender. So if they know that you're going to, they're pretty sure that if you're going to keep reoffending, they won't let you out. So I'm pretty sure that Jeremy is going to be marked as a dangerous offender and Maybe he's getting the mental health help that he so desperately needs. I don't know. I don't care. I didn't look him up. Um, not going to be writing him any letters? No, I'm not. And I am definitely not going to mosh for Jeremy either. No moshing for Stanky. No, and then, like I said, Jasmine changed her identity and just became a ghost. I'm sure there's somebody out there who knows who she is. But we, I watched a documentary that had a little segment of these guys. I think it was like deadly women or something. And um, there was a guy saying that he really wishes that Jasmine would have paid for what she did. Cause she got off pretty easily, even though she was mentally ill. It was just like, I guess the sociopathic like tendencies, they said that that's what they were kind of worried about. But anyways, regardless. So thank you so much for joining us. I am sorry that it took so long. And like I said, you know, it's the episodes are going to come out when they come out. I'll try to make sure that I stay on top of that to try to bring it to you weekly. And I'm sorry that I said this was going to be next week. I didn't realize exactly how big part two was. So I kind of was like, oh man, this is going to take longer than one week to put together. So Alrighty, so like I said before, we have an Instagram at um, spooky.talk.podcast. Gotta have the dots. We also have a Venmo at Spooky Talk Podcast. And we also have a Gmail at Spooky Talk Podcast at gmail.com. You can go ahead and email us with questions, concerns, or if you have a certain case or subject matter that you would like us to discuss, go ahead. And put that in the subject line and let us know what you want to hear about. And uh, do you have anything to add, Dallas? I do not. Alrighty, everybody. So with that, stay spooky. Bye. Bye.